It's so fun. You never know what a little one's going to say when you call them up front, do you? I'll tell you, I knew we were headed down a road that I didn't know if we could get out of. <laughs> you find that out on Christmas morning, don't you? you? You try to wrangle the kids around. They've run down, they've looked at all the presents, and you gather them on the couch. And you say, okay, we're going to read the Christmas story. And normally, you turn to either Matthew or Luke. But what would happen if you turned to John? John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I'll have them put that slide up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor by the will of flesh, nor by the will of men, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And your kids will look at you and say, What? Where's the angels? Where's the cattle? Where's the manger? Where's the shepherds? Where's Mary? Where's Joseph? But you say, the Christmas story's here. It's Jesus coming from heaven. But what a strange way to tell the story. Why would he tell the story in this manner? Why would he write it this way? A few years back, a pastor was asked to go to a large university on the West Coast and talk about Christianity to a religions class. At the end of the class, they had a time for question and answer, and a young man, a man searching, a man with sincerity, not a man playing gotcha, but a man with a sincere heart stood up. And he looked at the pastor and he asked a question. He asked this question. He said, Sir, Sir, do you think the Christian faith and ethic is applicable for the 21st century. Can we use the Christian faith? Does it even fit today? Does it even matter today? 
And the speaker gave his pithy little answer because he only had a few minutes and went on. But you see, I knew the speaker. He was a friend of mine. He was my mentor. And so I asked Dr. Stinsether. I said, what did you say? If you could have had all the time of the world, what would you have said? And Dr. Stinsether, he looked at me with a smile. And he said, Greg, I would have, I would have taken him through the four Gospels. For in studying them, you come to one conclusion, and that the faith that Jesus presents is perfect for today. It's what we need for today. It is for the 21st century. You see, Matthew speaks to the person who tries to find reality in the rites and rituals of religion. And he points to the fact that it can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. He looks at Mark. And Mark speaks to the person who is searching through for reality through power, through conquest, through justice. And he says that this reality is only found in the mercy of Jesus Christ alone. Luke speaks to the person today who is searching for the reality in the intellectual realm and points out that it is found in the all-knowing Jesus Christ. Now Matthew speaks to us through the Jewish culture, Mark through the Roman culture, Luke through the Greek culture which has shaped Western society. But today we come to John. John is unique. John speaks to the person searching for reality in the world of the mystical, in the world of the supernatural, the occult, the inner man. He says the reality is found in a spiritual connection with Jesus Christ alone. John speaks the language of the world of the Eastern culture, the world of the Orient. You see, the world of that day was influenced by Egypt, Babylon, China, and India. John's Gospel addresses this like none other. In a sense, John's Gospel addresses our day as the other three can't. You see, my friends, Eastern culture has been so integrated into our culture to our world you you know we as americans we are eclectic by nature we are synchristic by nature meaning that we like to walk around and go i like that i'll take that i like that i'll take that i like that i'll take that and so concepts eastern concepts are our concepts now you've heard of things like Karma, yin and yang, feng feng shui. In fact, if you are a follower of Star Wars, the whole philosophy behind the Force is all Eastern philosophy. It's who our country has become. It's it's how we relate. We've cherry-picked, we've chosen what we want to believe. 
Not only that, we've embraced dualism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Easter meditation practices. These are all part of our cultural fabric. We're also fascinated with the supernatural. Turn on your television and you'll find all sorts of ghost encounters on your TV screens. And even now there are vacations where you can go and find a place to have a supernatural encounter. This is our world. So John says, I'm going to write to you. I'm going to write to the mystic mind. And I'm going to do so under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to write in a way that the mystic might understand. You see, he writes so that human enlightenment might give way to divine revelation. So let's understand and look at the author, the audience, and the announcement of this great Gospel. Now John's name, John's name, means Jehovah is gracious. Jehovah is gracious. The name John, or one of its derivatives, has been one of the most popular names given. In fact, there's been more children named after John in, after this saint than, than probably any other name in history. And one of the things that's happened is by some strange reason, people who understand that John's name means gracious think that John was a gracious man. They think he was a, a gracious and kind being. And they're wrong. They're wrong. How many of you like to travel? Any of you? How many of you have traveled to Southern California? A few of you? Now, some of the sites you probably have seen in Southern California are the beaches. You probably have gone to the amusement parks, Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm, Magic Mountain, all those places. Maybe the La Brea Tar Pits and the, the zoo. But I have a place for you to put on your uh, agenda. I'd like you to go to a cemetery. Some of you are going, Pastor Greg, you're strange. <laughs> you're very, very strange. Those of you who are regulars here are going, we've known that a long time. It's called Forest Lawn. And if you go to Forest Lawn, and especially if you go during the time of Easter, I want you to go to the Hall of Resurrection. For at the Hall of Resurrection is one of the largest paintings in the world. It's 195 feet long, 45 feet tall, and it portrays the crucifixion. And often they'll have some sort of choir singing and they'll have spotlights and they'll spotlight various parts of the crucifixion and it'll come alive. And the curtain will then close. And then it'll open again. And it will be a huge painting of the resurrection. 
and they will hit it with the lights and the choir will sing and you will just stand up and shout at the resurrection. It's amazing. I had the privilege in college of being one of those choirs that got to sing in front of that. It, it was just one of those, those life-remembering experiences. But that's not the only place to see. There's another hall. And in it, there is a stained glass representation of da Vinci's Last Supper. Perfect representation. And they will do all sorts of things with light on it. It's, it's just fabulous. And if you look at it closely, you'll find that da Vinci had it about 90% right. He has each biblical character, each one of the disciples, and, 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 it, and it just portrays Peter as Peter, and Simon Peter as, as just who he is, and Andrew over here, and Bartholomew over here. And, and, but there's one he gets wrong. John. If you see John, John's like this. He's meek and mild. In fact, uh, some writers have said they're not even sure it's John. They think it's Mary Magdalene. I don't think it's Mary Magdalene. I think it's just Da Vinci didn't read his Bible like many people. Because John wasn't meek and mild. In fact, let's see what the Scriptures have to say about John. Mark 3, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, he called them the sons of thunder. That doesn't sound meek and mild to me. How about you? Or, and John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us. Or, later in Luke 9, and when his disciples James and John saw it, they said to the Lord, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Wow, nice guy. Hey, I don't like what they're doing. Let's just burn them up. Does that sound like meek and mild and gracious John? Not to me. But here's something I want you to see. John may have had personality problems, but he had no problem understanding what Jesus was trying to do. He connected with Jesus. In fact, he was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. You see, he understood that true biblical mysticism isn't mystical, but it's grounded in the Word of God. And he knew Jesus Christ as the living Word. He knew that he grounded himself in the words of Jesus Christ and the words of the Old Testament prophets and he saw how they came together and he realized who Jesus Christ is and he placed his faith in Jesus Christ and by doing so, he gained peace with God. And as he grew to know his Savior, he grew to experience that peace that comes only from his Savior. So for John, human enlightenment was replaced by divine revelation by encountering the living Word of God. Do you know people like that? 
people so grounded in Jesus, so grounded in his word, that when trials come, they have peace that passes all understanding. They are so anchored in Jesus that, that they have peace. I remember Betty. Betty's husband died. And we all grieved with her. And, and Betty goes, you know, I, I don't like bouncing around this house by myself. I, I need to have someone else living with me. And so he said, so you're going to go out and start looking for someone to live with you, right? And she goes, you know, Pastor, I've been pouring over the Scriptures, and I've been in prayer. And the sense I get from God is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all my heart. Don't lean on my understanding. In all my ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct my paths. And so I sense that I'm to wait until He directs my path. Okay, you, you're going to wait. Yep. You're sure. Yep. God will reveal when it's His time to reveal, and I'm not going to push it. Two weeks later, after she told us, a call came into the church office. It was a young woman, young in her faith. And she says, I'm coming out of a bad situation. I need a place to live. And so we called Betty out. They met. Betty said from the moment they met, they knew it was a God thing. And so shortly after that, the young woman moved in and lived there for a good period of time. And Betty poured in her, and Betty mentored her, and Betty showed her the God of the Bible. And this woman grew in her faith. Why? Because she was anchored in the Word of God. This is what John's communion with the Lord was like. We see it in Revelation 1.10. John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now a mystic would hear that and it would resonate with their heart, but it was a biblical perspective of truth. It was John who God uses to write Revelation. It is God who uses John to write a book that will touch the heart of an Eastern mystic with the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ who in the midst of their mystical religions need a Savior. Human enlightenment will be replaced by divine revelation. Now when we come to the audience, the audience that he is writing to is an audience of extremes. Especially in the area of wealth. Extreme wealth and extreme poverty. Several years ago, I traveled to kind of the heart of the East. I, I traveled and was in Nepal, Kathmandu, and I saw it. I saw extreme wealth right next to extreme poverty. I worshiped and preached in mud churches and tarp churches and walked 
in fabulous temples. I watched as people would go to these fabulous temples and do all sorts of expensive rituals and then look just down the road and people living on the street. Incredible wealth. Incredible poverty. And as I met with the leaders of the country, this is what they told me. They said, the poor here, they seek help. They're searching for help. But the wealthy are searching for purpose. And so they turn to the mystical religions of the East, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Shintoism, and this is where our Christmas story comes to play. For all those who have pursued these isms have found a chasm, and they've been left empty, and so Jesus comes into the story. Remember Matthew chapter 2? Now after this, Jesus was born in Judea in the days of Herod the king, and behold, wise men from the east came to Bethlehem. And what are they saying? Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These are men who are filled with wisdom, filled with the knowledge of every religion of the day, but they didn't come to seek wealth. They didn't come to seek favor. They came to seek the King of kings to worship. They needed a Savior, and they found their Savior in Jesus Christ. Matthew tells us that Jewish culture could only produce a Pharisee, but it needed a Savior. Mark tells us Roman culture could only produce a Caesar, but it needed a Savior. Greek culture could only produce a philosopher, but it needed a Savior. John now tells us Eastern culture could only produce a guru, but it needed a Savior. Today, Eastern thought we are told, will open awareness to an infinite reservoir of energy, creativity, and intelligence that lies within us. But I'd like to quote a former practitioner of transcendental meditation. This is what the practitioner said. My involvement in transcendental meditation increased my self-confidence and joy and peace in terms of self-confidence but not the peace of God which passes all understanding. Yeah, I, I got some, some stuff out of it, but I didn't get the peace of God. I need a Savior. That's what the Christmas wise men found that's what they came looking for a savior who could provide the promise of life and that great truth based experience of sweet communion with the god of the universe and this is the announcement of the gospel when john announces the good news of the gospel he does so in a way that attracts the mind of the mystic first he presents the mystery of the infinite. John 1.1 1, 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The infinite, the pre-existent Jesus who never had a beginning. This would attract the mind of the mystic. How could this be? It's a mystery. And then in John 3.16, the mystery of deity. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. That's the mystery of deity. Imagine if we had a program and I called a little boy up and had the little boy quote John 3.16 and I said, good, good, good job, good job. Oh, okay. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Good, 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 good. Can I ask you some questions? Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, I, I see that you a, a, a said John three sixteen, but I have a question. Was that, um, do you believe that because of ontological evidence or theological evidence or cosmological evidence? Why do you believe that God is who He says in that verse? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes... Oh, okay, fine, fine. That's too hard for you? Okay, then tell me this. How could God love me, a sinner? A guy who rebels against Him. How could God love me? I don't know. I don't love you much either right now. <laughs> for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten... Okay, fine, fine. Then explain to me Predestination. Can you do that? Can you do that? Mom, can you take this scary man away? All I know is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You're right. I don't claim to understand all the depth of the mystery of God. But he's right. God loved me a sinner. I can't explain the depths and majesty of who God is. But God gave. And then we come to the third one. John 14, 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and that you are in me and I in you. This is a mystery of spirituality. I just want you to look at the last seven words. One conjunction, two prepositions, four pronouns. Most five-year-olds in here could tell you the meaning of those words, but put those words in this order and most theologians can't tell you the depth of the statement. You in me. Salvation. I in you. Christ living in me. Living himself in me. Sanctification is what theologians call that. Living out his will. That's a mystery. I can tell you the words, but beyond that, 
Can you explain its depth and its width and its height? It's a mystery that the Eastern mind is drawn to. Just like John's 3.16, so simple a child can believe it, so deep a theologian cannot plumb its depths. After studying this announcement of John's Gospel, it's easy to understand why this is the final Gospel. It's the conclusion. It gives us the height, the depth, the breadth of the Gospel truth. It presents the life-changing truth of the Christ of Christmas from a perspective that only John could because he had personally experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. And he had been changed by him over a long period of time. Matthew wrote his gospel four years after Pentecost. Mark, about 27 years after Pentecost. Luke, about 32. John, 55. Why so long? Could it be because God was working in the Son of Thunder, the man who cried out, burn them. The man who Jesus called Thunder and was transforming him by the power of the Gospel. I think so. Because you see of the four Gospels, the Gospel of John is known as the Gospel of love. The Epistle of John is known as the Epistle of love. First John is known as the Epistle of love. Huh. Could there have been a transformation that took place? Hmm. You know, legend tells us that John lived to the age of a hundred. And he kept preaching. If I make it to a hundred, can I come back and preach? Who said no? <laughs> I see you. How about if I preach like John did? He only preached five words. Some of you are going, you could start doing that next Sunday, Pastor. <laughs> five words. His body had given out. They would put him in a chair. They would carry him up in front of everyone. And he would just preach five words. What do you think they were? I'll tell you. Little children. There's two of them. Love one another. Little children. Love one another. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ had transformed the apostle of thunder into the apostle of love. 
And that's the message of Christmas. That the gospel of Jesus Christ can transform you if you embrace it. So what are you going to do with the gospel?